Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 21, The Return of the Archons. Joy to you, friends. Peace and contentment fulfill you. Welcome to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week we watch an episode of Star Trek. We analyze and dissect and ask the big questions. What was it about? What ideas were presented? And does the whole ball of wax stand the test of time? The big question this week, though, Ken, are you... Of the body. Of the body. Dude, I rock the body. You'd make a terrible cult member. <laughs> I would make... Well, no, I would... I, but I'd be a pretty good cult leader, I think. <laughs> really? <laughs> did, did, were you voted that in high school? Like, most likely to lead a cult, Ken it's a, Ray? It's a secret dream that I have. It's, <laughs> it's you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'll pursue it because it's been a secret dream of mine for a while. But, you know, mm-hmm. if you're looking for somebody to blindly follow, give me a call. We'll talk. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this week we are, of course, covering Return of the Archons, or The Return of the Archons, if we were to be more correct. And um, I almost didn't watch this episode, actually, because I missed the one with the Archons. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Where, where have all the Archons gone? <laughs> Long well, time this week we find out. No, no. So we, we're going to find out what happened to all those Archons. We go to the planet Beta 3, and uh, things are a little weird. Um, there's a lot going on in this episode. I can't wait to really heavily get into it um but remember folks if you would like to be one with the body you can reach out to us on facebook skype and twitter at the handle mission log pod or you can even call us at 323-522-5641 you can email us at mission log at roddenberry.com and don't forget to check out our very nice homepage on the internet at mission log podcast.com remember we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of mission log and uh, and tag them, if you will, with the subject line, ooh, look at that body. <laughs> <laughs> different, to totally, totally different. All week, getting ready for this episode, I've got like, uh, what is that, a party rock anthem? No, mm-hmm. it's not no, that one. No. It's I'm sexy and I know it. Sexy right? and I know it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So good. Yeah. 50 years from now, people will be like, oh, what is this sexy and I know it of which they speak? <laughs> Um, just yeah, another just, tidbit for our audience. Ken is a big LMFAO fan. <laughs> oh, totally. LMFAO. O-M-G. I don't remember. Anyway. Yeah, love him. Absolutely love him. Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Right up there with Gangnam Style. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, this, this show is going to be out of date in seven months. <laughs> right. Well, you know what won't be out of date in seven months, Ken? And that's trivia. Trivia is forever. And I've got a couple of tidbits for you for this week. All right. Um, now, one of the lawgivers, and of course, these are the guys in the creepy hooded robes who walk around pointing their pointy sticks at anybody who is insubordinate. One of those guys is a creepy character actor, Sid Haig. And he has just been in a ton of stuff, primarily horror, a lot of sci-fi, um, Man from Uncle. You did a lot of TV in the 60s and 70s. And more importantly, he would later appear in the Saturday morning sci-fi series Jason of Star Command alongside James Doohan. So if you were a kid in the 70s, as was I, you were probably watching Jason of Star Command and you would have gone, wow, who's that creepy guy playing Drago? I sure hope he doesn't uh, go after James Doohan. That was him. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Another bit of of actor trivia here, actually. Hey, remember from way back when... Arena, the guy in the Gorn suit, Bobby Clark. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he actually has his only Star Trek speaking line in The Return of the Archons. He is early on in the show when the Red Hour starts. He's yelling, festival, festival. That is Bobby Clark. That's pretty cool. I didn't recognize him. I met him, uh, I met him at, um, at a convention in Las Vegas. Uh, yeah. But I didn't recognize him. It's been a few years. Well, and he was not wearing a giant green lizard head. Yes, nor was he yelling festival every time I saw him. <laughs> right. Um, and finally, I thought this was interesting. You know, uh, Star Trek was based, their, their studio space, their offices was all at Desilu. And that's now part of the Paramount lot. 
And uh, this episode, though, we finally get to get outside. We're on a back lot. This particular back lot stuff was shot at Culver City Studios. And um, it, it's still there. I, I don't know if that particular back lot is there. I doubt it. But Culver City Studios is still there. A lot of big studios out that way. Sony, um, to name one. And it is a beautiful area, beautifully landscaped. And they have this kind of um, antebellum main building that looks like, uh, well, it looks like Tara from Gone with the Wind. And that's their main office building. But a lot of shows were shot on this back lot, including Andy Griffith, Batman, and actually Gone with the Wind. Citizen Kane was shot on this studio. So big, big studio with a lot of history. And uh, it's kind of cool to know where this particular one was shot. Hey, and here's a little bit of uh, Star Trek trivia for you, Ken. Mm -hmm. This is the first episode where we introduce by name the Prime Directive. (laughs) <laughs> Spock actually says the Prime Directive, and hey, it, it's too bad that the Prime Directive won't be able to stick around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because... the Prime Directive, which uh, James T. Kirk wads up and throws back in Spock's face immediately. Pretty much it takes two <laughs> lines of dialogue <laughs> to wrap that up. But it was really neat. I mean, it, well, uh, there's there's something else weird that happens later in the episode where it turns out the Prime Directive all of a sudden is like this universal idea. Like everybody's got a Prime Directive. Yeah, well, don't think. <laughs> just out of nowhere. Yeah, but we don't all call it that, do we? I don't know if we actually all have that or not. But and my ears did, you know, perk up a bit because yes, I know about the Prime Directive from years of watching Star Trek. But now going back and watching it, you know, in order, I, I recognize. Hey, this is the first time we've heard that. Are we going to get an examination of it? Oh, nope. Nope. <laughs> not Too bad. today. Thank you very much. Let's just uh, let's just start beating up the body. Festival, festival, I want to return with the Archons to Festival. Let's hear more about it. Prologue. Sulu and O'Neill are on the surface of Beta 3 looking for clues about the disappearance of the Archon, a ship that disappeared here nearly a century ago. Being pursued by some of the planet's inhabitants, the two ask to be beamed up, but only Sulu is rescued. Back on the Enterprise, well, Sulu just ain't right. He's going on about Landru and how Kirk isn't of the body and how the uniforms they wear are the same as the Archons. Hmm. Act 1. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and a new guy, Lindstrom, beam down to planet Beta 3 with a couple of security guards to see if they can find O'Neill and find out why Sulu came back as a glassy-eyed, smiling weirdo. Everyone on the planet has the same distant stare as Sulu and pleasant but empty chatter, walking around in a daze. One of the town folk warns the group that the Red Hour is coming, and boy how. At Red Hour, at the start of the festival, all hell breaks loose with screaming, fighting, breaking stuff, and general mayhem. Trying to get out of it, the landing party goes into a hotel to find a room. Now, one of the things all the town folks seem to be asking is whether or not the landing crew is of the body, and everyone is a little suspicious of these strangers. The more questions Kirk asks, the more agitated Rager and everyone else becomes. The next morning, the hotel owner, Rager, wonders the same thing, but then he asks if the landing party are archons. Before you know it, a couple of robed and hooded thugs, the lawgivers, show up to drag the landing party away to be absorbed presumably into that body we keep hearing about, headed up by someone in power called Landrew. Act 2. Kirk is having none of this of-the-body stuff and just flat-out refuses. The hooded creeps, lawgivers, are confused, and the landing party escapes with Rager. Landrew telepathically orders the entire town to find the landing party, and one of those in pursuit is that missing crewman, O'Neill, who they haven't seen, well, since way back in the prologue. Rager begs Kirk to leave him behind, but Kirk brings him along anyway. Kirk prods Rager for a little more information about what exactly is going on. He explains that the Archons came many years ago, but they were either absorbed or outright killed. Landrew has some power. Spock thinks that he has found the source of that power, but Kirk is more concerned about the ship. Yep, there are heat beams coming from the planet, which are really taxing the Enterprise's engines. Here comes a term that we're all familiar with, decaying orbit. All that communicator chatter, by the way, may have had another bad side effect. Here comes a holographic projection of Landrew, who basically says he's going to absorb them into a state of contentment, whether they like it or not. 
some kind of hypnotizing sound incapacitates the crew. Act 3. After capture, the crew awaken in a dungeon of some sort. Spock is starting to think that Landrew and the Lawgivers, uh, no, no, that's not a band name, are acting like a computer. McCoy is gone, but comes back in shortly, and he has seriously been changed. He's got that distant stare, the odd mindless chatter about being part of the body. Next is going to be Kirk's turn. You can't talk your way out of this one. Now we're in a more polished laboratory-type room, and Kirk is greeted by the man who is going to very kindly change him into a zombie-like cult member. Back in the dungeon, Spock has tried to mind-meld with McCoy, but he's not getting anywhere. No chance to try again, though. Time to go to the lab where you will also be turned into a Landry worshiper. Spock is just in time to catch Kirk coming out of the chamber, and yep, there's all that talk again about being part of the body. Oh, no. Act 4. Spock is all ready to face the absorption machine, but lucky break, the guy in control says he is actually part of the resistance and is very kindly not going to create any more zombie-like Landrew worshippers. It's too late for McCoy, but little secret, Kirk is actually okay. Spock gets the phasers back and now joins Kirk and the others in the dungeon. Spock has a theory now. The society they are in is a machine. All parts are simply acting as part of a program. There is only peace and tranquility because all creativity and impulse has been stamped out. Kirk decides that Landrew must die. Spock says, hey, hold on. Remember the Prime Directive? Kirk shrugs that off since this is not a growing society. The man who is in charge of the conversion, Marplan, shows up to bring Kirk and Spock the communicators. But McCoy, fully enjoying his time being of the body, freaks out. He calls for the lawgivers, but this time Kirk and Spock are ready to overpower them. They steal the robes and want to find Landrew. Rager gets cold feet. Even though he's immune to absorption, he's scared of Landrew. He explains that their society was once warlike, but Landrew returned them to a state of peace. He still sees and hears. Spock just uses the old nerve pinch, and Marplan takes him along to see Landrew. Kirk barges in, claiming to be an Archon, and Landrew's hologram appears again. Then he starts getting threatening. For the good of the body, Kirk and Spock must die, including all who knew or saw them. A phaser blasts later, and we see that Landrew's projection was coming from a machine. The machine thinks it is Landrew. At least it contains all of Landrew's knowledge and has been programming the society for thousands of years. The machine will do all it can to protect the good of the body, but Spock and Kirk see this as a weakness. Kirk uses a little word jujitsu to confuse the computer. It is doing harm to the body by stamping out creativity and life. If it is doing harm, then it must stop. The computer is convinced that it is evil and it self-destructs. Well, that was quick. Destroy a 6,000-year-old society, Sulu is back to his old self in literally no time, and the Enterprise leaves behind a small crew to help rebuild. On the bridge, Spock expresses how impressed he was with Landrew, and Kirk pays Spock the ultimate compliment that he too would make an excellent, soulless machine. From the surface, we hear that things are normal, fights, domestic disturbances, everything you need for a little human fun. Kirk then pontificates about how lucky we have been to have never achieved a completely utopian world with no conflict. <laughs> There's a lot in this episode. It, where do you even begin? Start with <laughs> festival. Okay, let's talk about festivals. So the Red Hour, people go <laughs> nuts. Right. And, and they're, they're literally like punching each other and throwing people through windows and, and they just go insane. For it, this 12-hour period. It's TV, so you can't show what's really happening, but it's rape and pillage. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's rape and pillage. We see, like, fully clothed men grabbing fully clothed women and making out with them on the street. And some yeah. of the women seem horrified and some of the women seem elated. But, yeah. I mean, bottom line, it's 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 like a violent bacchanalia without yeah. the liquor. <sighs> but, but, but what is the purpose of the festival? Because well, that, everything is run by the computer. Yeah. And- What's what's the point? That is a really good question. Um, oh, you're welcome. I didn't thank you. It, it hurts <laughs> my head. I mean, it, it's. I got a couple of thoughts on it. I mean, first of all, trying to trace the roots of the festival to me is like trying to trace the uh, trace the roots. No letters. Trying to trace the roots of the saints or the Virgin Mary or Krampus or or the Christmas tree. Um, 
for many, if not most at this point, uh, the Christmas tree is just a tradition, one that stretches back as far as when they were children and goes unquestioned beyond that point. But for some people, you know, I mean, if you look back in it historically, there are any number of reasons, which I kind of did, trying to figure out, yeah, what is that as we're, you know, talking about why do we have this festival? Mm-hmm. It's possible that festival is Landru almost like tipping his hat to, you know, I run a pretty tight ship most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so for these, you know, 12 hours, because it goes from uh, the red hour, 6 p.m. to I don't know what color 6 a.m. is, but yep. yeah, it goes for 12 hours. And it's 12 right. hours of absolute horror, you know, for yeah. some people and absolute, I guess, elation or joy for others. I, I mean, it, probably 6,000 years ago or 7,000 years ago, festival made sense. Probably there was a reason for it. And that, I think, has just sort of been lost to time. And now it's just it's just it is what it is. And you could, I mean, it, it would be really neat to read the scholarly thesis that comes from Lindstrom years from now. <laughs> so what was festival anyway, or why was festival? Um, is it lucky or unlucky that, uh, that, that they happen to arrive right at festival time? Or does festival happen once a week? We, I, it, it we, might, don't, yeah. we don't learn a lot about festival except that, you know, it's, uh, it's fairly um, base- I guess would be the best way to put it, the kindest way to put it. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, maybe I'll buy that, but I'll tell you what I don't buy. Hmm. And and that's <laughs> after we've destroyed Landru mm-hmm. through through word jujitsu. Yeah. Um, which I, I I'm not a fan of that anyway. <laughs> Kirk Kirk literally just turns his back on on uh, on the the people of beta 3 and the computer itself and he just says over his shoulder you better start looking for a new job yes and, and then he's done with it 6000 years of history now granted pretty stagnant history right but he 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 has no no qualms about this at all yeah yeah and, and by the way and at that instant did you notice we we go from destroying landru Kirk radios up to the Enterprise, and there's Sulu right there on the bridge in uniform. Yeah. It, 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 you know, he was dressed as like a pilgrim before, <laughs> talking about the body. And like, oh, hey, I'm back. Yeah, like, well, did, did you beam up from your quarters there are, to the bridge? There, there's, there's, there, yeah, there are a few inconsistencies here, although one assumes you know, that they're taking, everything really, taking care of everything really quickly. They're not going to leave any loose ends, although they leave several. Um, oh, yeah. we, we know that Sulu is fine. It is kind of weird that uh, Sulu and O'Neill are dressed sort of like, um, I would put them late 1700s, you know, according yeah. to dramas that we've seen, um, sort of sort of just, just post-colonial. Uh, Spock and McCoy and Kirk show up like, you know, extras from the Wild Wild West. Right. You know, with the right. bolo and the, and the, like the, the watch fob and, you know, and they, and their costumes are about... 75 years after Sulu and O'Neill's costumes <laughs> to beam down to the same planet to blend in. Eh, okay. Maybe, right. although maybe that's, maybe that's how, you know, costumes go during festival. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that's their time to break loose. Festival, we're going to wear costumes from 75 years in the future. Right. Or, that, or maybe, maybe, you know, they went to the costume shop and, and, you know, because of festival, all the good costumes were gone. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're we're just goofing on that. I think and and I, I know I'm goofing on it because yeah, my head's gonna start hurting in about three minutes. Well here's the thing. The the thing that you brought up hmm. it, it 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 does it raises all these questions about beta three. You know, I, I'm sitting there watching this going, well, who are these people? Why do they dress like this? Why I it, Do they call you know, their own planet Beta Three? Right. Right. <laughs> but what was their encounter with the Archons like? You know, we, we get a sense that it was kind of like what plays out with the Enterprise here. These right. people show up and they try to kind of uh, undo it maybe, but they're a threat. Um, why does festival affect some people and not others? There's um, yeah. just all this stuff that comes up. And that really makes it hurt when you go back to this idea of taking the prime directive and, as you said, watering up and throw it in Spock's face because we know nothing about these people at all other than they have some very interesting costume choices. That's the thing that kind of um, – that I kept looking for in the episode just in terms of like a a structural you know, kind of plot and background 
was mm-hmm. to try to understand what all was going on here. Now, I understand, and you know, we always get to this in our wrap-up, I understand that the, the context of, well, let's say, TV show in the 60s, we're on a back lot, we have to get costumes. You know, we get all of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but in terms of the storytelling here, in terms of the writing for the background, we only are given enough to say it was different 6,000 years ago, and now you got a computer... And all these people are a part of it. Well, and and you could, on the one hand, you could fault it for not spelling everything out. On the other hand, it gives us just an incredible amount to play with. Um, they are when they go to the hideout, not the jail. And honestly, it would, took my second watching to realize, oh, they've actually been moved because yeah, they go right. to sort of like one subterranean layer to another subterranean layer. The only difference is, um, I guess, there's no window and yeah. the door doesn't have a knob on it. When they're they in jail, look exactly the same. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. yeah and and you, and like you end, you end Act Two in one subterranean layer, and you open Act Three in another. I think. Right. I mean, there's there's like so it yeah the transition in, on that is kind of tough, but right. um, when they go to the hideout, Rager Rager mm-hmm. pulls out a light panel, right. Which is a really neat thing. Now, you know, looking at it, it's pretty much like somebody took a white canvas and shined a light on it. Yep. But 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 still, the whole thing is played out really well, where they have this piece of technology that, that honestly, the guys from the Enterprise seem impressed with. Mm-hmm. And certainly, it's nothing that the inhabitants of Beta 3 could have built, at least not the way they stand right now. And that's when we started to find out that that there was a time before when things were... Very different when mm-hmm. when technology was you know all the rage and 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 like you know they they had this light panel and this light panel is six thousand years old, <laughs> right? And it's still emitting light, right? <laughs> and it's still simple enough to use that some idiot from eighteen whatever time yeah. <laughs> can can run it. I shouldn't call him an idiot. He seems like a nice man, but I don't think technology was his thing. Um, and, and of course, we also know that there is a – we find out later there's a giant computer running society. Yeah. So on the one hand, you can fault it and say, well, we're just give, being given like three pieces and we're supposed to piece something together. I actually kind of like the fact that from those three pieces, we can make so many different things. This is like – this is like um, – the flip side of Miri in a way where we were given like pieces that you could play with, but you really have to actively want to play. Mm-hmm. They give you a lot in this episode that you almost can't help but play with it. Yeah. What is festival about? Yeah. What, I mean, what, right. you know, how did, how did that survive through the hyper technological thing that beta three apparently was before it got stepped back to roughly an 1800 something or an 18 something, um, uh, society, maybe early 1900s, maybe, but that's well, really I, stretching it. Yeah, and, and I think the hard thing about festival, why why I brought that up originally, is that it, it's you assume that everything the computer Landry is doing has a purpose. It's not doing anything that is frivolous or fun. You know, everything serves a purpose to serve the body. Therefore, festival must have a purpose, and that's kind of what I was getting out there okay but bear in mind six thousand years ago when this happened i mean when mm-hmm. you hear Roger talk about this rager mm-hmm. however you pronounce it when you mm-hmm. hear rager talk about this i mean he the coming of landrew was a good thing to society six thousand years ago mm-hmm. they were in the midst of war and and just terrible things society was tearing itself apart i believe he said the planet was tearing itself apart which i know physically he doesn't mean the planet was tearing itself apart but right, society right. was tearing itself apart and landrew who at the time was just a human leader had this idea. You know what yeah. we need to do? We need to draw this back a bit. Let's simplify. You don't need all that technology. And, you know, let's, let's quit with the fighting and we'll just, we'll just be cool. So at the time, I mean, so imagine that kind of transformation today. Assuming you're not going to roll a military junta in, right? Assuming that you're going to get everybody to be on board with this idea that, yeah, we're all going to be Amish from now on. That's right. what we're going to be. Well, I want zippers. Maybe we'll be... What's the one that's not Amish, but kind of like Mennonites? Yes, we'll be yeah. Mennonites. I don't know if they have zippers or not, but you know, we're, we're not going to go all the way Amish, but we'll be Mennonites. Yeah. Let's say um, there are still things that society is going to want to hold on to, traditions that society is going to want to hold on to. So Landrew, six thousand years ago, when he was still human, may mm-hmm. have seen value in festival, 
and kept it in that respect. You're right. The computer doesn't necessarily – the computer is not saying, I think pink would be nice. Or right. you know, the computer is not <laughs> right. saying, I want fresh flowers for everybody next week because I think that would be good. The computer is sort of set in its, in its very much programmed ways, but part of that programming was festival. When the computer started, let's assume, um, festival was deemed necessary by the human Landru. Yeah, right. Who fashioned the computer in his own image, right? True. So I, I think it's. I mean, again, I think it's. I think it's tradition, which which has an important place in in human society. Now, as this episode obviously points out, you need more than just tradition. Yeah. But but it is. I mean, it's an important thing for a lot of people. Not everybody. Not everybody cottons to it, but some people do. Well, and I think here's the other difficult thing about this episode is that you know this planet this society has been there for at least 6000 years you know it, however long before that when they were more technologically advanced but they've been there a very very long time right. and we keep refer to referring to them kirk keeps referring to them as human beings well these are not from earth you know and i i think it's very difficult in this episode a few times that they are so earth-like they are so human-like mm-hmm. um that we keep making all of these assumptions about them because of that you know um by the end we'll come back to that in a moment when we get into our topics i'm absolutely certain of it um one thing by the way i wanted to point out here is that did you notice that at the end spock is very impressed by Landrew as this feat of engineering. He's like, oh, wow, boy, that, that was a great computer. And um, he says that at the very end, but all up until that point, he just goes along with everything Kirk does. You know, he, uh, he admires the logic and he dismisses this metaphysical idea uh, of a soul, <laughs> right. which, which then would have been the computer's downfall. Um, but up until that point, he's just like, yeah, boy, we, we got to get rid of Landrew. Now, Part of this obviously was a bit of uh, self-preservation, I think. Right. Um, and maybe this is a sort of reflective on Spock. But you would think that if anybody, it would be Spock who would say, hey, uh, before we destroy this computer, maybe this is the thing that's actually making this culture work. <laughs> and by the way, let's get out of here. If the culture, <laughs> if the culture works. If the culture works, yeah. But it's been working for 6,000 years. Well, define working, though. I mean, Kirk and maybe this belongs in the next segment. I don't know. But, you know, Kirk pretty much decides that it's not working. This is the whole thing again where he throws the prime directive back in his face. Yeah. Spock says they can't interfere because of the prime directive. And and Kirk says that's only for, um, what is it, growing thriving societies or growing working societies? Yeah. Which, you know, in his, what? 12 hours, 18 hours there, he's decided it's not the case for this one. Right. Yeah. So, ah, I'm sorry. I, 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 ugh. It's a loopy episode. And I don't mean it's a loopy episode like it's crazy, although it is, but it's a loopy episode. You get started on one thing and it like just ends up tracking back around. I don't, you're right. In another episode or in, in a movie, maybe in a longer period of time, in a novel, there might've actually been a debate. Sort of like the one they had in the ready room around, um, the man trap where they're trying mm-hmm. to decide what the fate of, you know, this thing should be. There's no discussion here. And and as you say, maybe it's because maybe it's a self-preservation thing. They were all going to be mindless drones to Landrew had right. it not been for the almost non-existent and yet very um, powerful underground. Um, it keeps looping back on itself or I keep looping back on it. I, I apologize. I feel like I've de- derailed you like three times just so I can sit here and go, Ugh. Well, with that, let's get into it. Upon hearing more about it, I think I would rather give Festival a miss. Also, I don't want to be one with the body, though this Landry CPU sounds like quite the fellow. Well, you know what we have here, John. Uh Uh-oh. It's it's another one of those... um, carbon chauvinist <laughs> presentations the the, the 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 argument sort of the way the way that uh, uh kirk is able to disable the computer is by arguing to it that it doesn't have a soul that's one of the ways he does it but the automatic right. assumption that you know uh, feet of engineering though you may be well programmed though you may be uh you're just a machine so shut up 
so that was something that jumped out at me that that we're back to this thing about technology versus humanity again. I mean, Kirk is definitely saying we're humans. We have all these other traits that are better than technology. See, so so we win. That's interesting because while the while the underpinning of this episode is sort of is a carbon chauvinist, as I say, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's actually technology versus humanity. I mean, unless you want to sort of broaden the definition of technology, mm-hmm. um, I sort of feel like this is more like absolute law versus humanity or adherence to system versus humanity. And it's not to say, you know, you don't have systems, you just throw them away because systems need to be thrown away. But an inflexible and unimpeachable set of rules and behaviors is what's killing society here, not a computer. Now, it's a computer that's sort of keeping everybody in that line. Mm-hmm. Uh, make the land room machine a totalitarian society or a system that leaves absolutely no room for examination by its participant. And, and you end up with the same result as if there's a computer there. So the land room machine has similarities to Dr. Roger Corby bot. God bless hey, him. Hey, Corby's back. Yeah. Gotta love him. Well, I mean, they, they do the, the same staccato thing at the end, right? Does not, right. wait, I, but I, uh-huh. I uh-huh. think I am, says yep. the computer and nobody's, you know, denying whether he am, but, right. <laughs> but I think, uh, I think Kirk would deny whether or not he thinks. Right. Um, so there's a bit of what are little girls made of here in the computer in this episode, but I think uh, different than that, the computer here is a metaphor for a system or a society like, you know, the totalitarian state or the state that, you know, has uh, – that, that, that won't even look at its own underpinnings. No, 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 no. The way we are set up is inviolate. And so, so we can't even look at that and that's what's going to keep us going. And, and that's different than what happened in What Are Little Girls Made Of, where, you know, which is sort of like a Terminator story or, or like war games. Although I think if you boil those down, they're also metaphors for systems. But – that again gets back into you know sort of the loopy loopy loop thing. Um, it doesn't feel to me like this is technology versus man, though. It feels to me more like this is well I, previous I mean, previous or past I, I think constructs. Technology is an important component here. I think it's a very important component, and, yeah. and I agree with you that we are also using technology as a metaphor. But when you when you keep peeling back and you keep analyzing this episode, and that's why you and I are both feeling this kind of um, just sort of like intimidation almost <laughs> by this episode, mm-hmm. is that you've got huge explorations going on here. You can look at this episode through the through the, the sort of filter of religion, conformity, uh, certainly because of the, the period that this was written and shot, communism, you know, we're talking Cold War here. And I, I look at a movie like um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, the ultimate sort of Cold War red scare movie. This has a very, very similar thread right through it, that conformity is wrong, being part of this um, this sort of dictatorial whole that controls individuals is, is patently wrong. So... And they, all of those huge elements are right there for us to, to have a look at. Well, I mean, just okay, do me a favor. Just put a couple of modifiers on there. It's not that conformity sure. is wrong. It's that blind conformity is wrong. It's not that living in a society of laws, it's wrong. It's, it's living in a society of laws that, that cannot be questioned or examined is wrong, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is weird because we're doing sort of a role reversal thing, but I'm going to be Mr. Culture here and you're going to be Mr. <laughs> Counterculture. I, and, you know, because for some reason that's not how this tends to work out, even though I think we're generally speaking on the same page on that kind of thing. But I think so, too. Yeah. It's not I mean, this is not this is not tune in, turn on, drop out. But it is, you know, sort of yeah, let's examine what we're doing and why or let's leave it open to examine what we're doing and why. See, you say the technology is important in this episode. I think the technology is only important because we've set this in the 23rd century. I mean, we've mm. set this in the future. I don't know if we actually know that it's the 23rd century at the time that we're watching this episode of Star Trek. But we've set this in the future. But this goes back to if people listen to the supplemental with Robert J. Sawyer that we had on a few weeks ago, his his uh, take on Star Trek, uh, historically what Gene Roddenberry wanted to do was to do an anthology show. And you sort of get that. Sometimes you get Old West shows like um, uh, like Mud's Women, 
was was very mm-hmm. much an old west show. Sometimes you get very you know far future technology shows like what are the little girls made of, and and in this episode you get an examination of a society that that is not allowed to question itself. And you can apply that to religion, or you can apply that to a communist dictatorship, or you can apply that to a very jingoistic America. I mean, you can apply this to any number. You can you can take this filter and lay it over so many different stories. Yeah. You you get to use technology for this because you're doing it on Star Trek, but you could have done this same thing on, well, you know, name another anthology show. You could have done it on The Outer Limits, and or you could have done it on Playhouse, whatever it was, Playhouse, yeah, Playhouse ninety, Playhouse yeah. ninety. I mean, you could have done this kind of episode in any number of settings. So, to me, it honestly feels like you could strip the technology part out of it and still have kind of the same story. Right. Well, and, and I think the two things that kind of colored my viewing of it, uh, there are two important things going on here. I mean, uh, the script, uh, at least the language of it, mm-hmm. is really interesting. And you are definitely making these religious uh, uh, undertones. <laughs> you are. Well, uh, but, I mean, <laughs> it, it, you know, look at this. They're saying <laughs> things like, you know, peace be with you, peace, tranquility, blah, blah. And, and it has this religious sound to it. Happy, you know, happy, joy, joy, my friends. Happy, happy, joy, joy. <laughs> right. Yes. So, so you've got that. Um, but then I also look at it, you know, like I said, from the, the perspective of the time that it was written, the time that it was aired. And I keep thinking of this comparison to the Soviet Union. Yeah, you know, you know, and we're talking about an entity that does not allow questioning of how the government is run mm-hmm. internally or externally, you know, and then we compare that to our sort of, you know, good old American values that we're a democracy and everybody has a voice. So that, you know, to me, that speaks of the time. And certainly it holds true today that most Americans are very proud of democracy. <laughs> you know, this is an important thing about the United States. Um, but I think it might have been more acute at that time because we we could paint the opposition. We could paint the Soviet Union in those very specific black and white terms. So I, I think there's a big, big part of that influencing this. Yes, I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, it would have been a more, it would have been a more resonant message. Well, I shouldn't say it would be a more resonant message at the time. Maybe a more prevalent message at the time if you want to apply, you know, the whole um, communist, Soviet, totalitarian, you know, mm. uh, the Red Scare kind yeah, of things yeah. that were going on or, or had just been happening. Well, I guess it was still happening at that but, but time. I, but again, I think you have to, I think you have to be able to apply it. You know, I have a, I have a giant thing against homeowner associations, <laughs> which may sound crazy. I I have I have a problem with rules just for the sake of rules. Yeah, yeah, I guess. And you know, it's it's fine. Homeowner associations work for a lot of people. That's okay. I've been to neighborhoods before where if you have a sign that's you know above a certain size, you can't be there. And if you want to live in that place, God bless you. You know, mm. I don't have big signs on my front yard, but you know what I like? I could. <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted to. So, I mean, I just, I mean, you're right. It definitely has, it definitely has a certain appeal for the time that it was in as far as, as far as, uh, as far as communism, as far as, as far as the Iron Curtain, and as far as, you know, sort of being able to hold ourselves in the West or in the United States up as better or at least freer. But I mean, it feels to me like, like I said before, you could apply it to almost, you could apply it to any number of situations, uh, the, the sort of, um, the conundrum that it puts people yeah. in. Well, yeah, and going back to this blind faith idea, you know, we don't have that sort of red scare, uh, you know, anti-Soviet thing that we used to have because there is no more Soviet Union. Right. Um, but I, I do feel like this idea of a, a blind faith, like looking at a cult or, or something like that, that is still very much uh, applicable here. And, we see this as kind of uh, the the false god problem that we reveal at the end here. Oh well, your your god, your thing that you worship that gives you all of your rules is just a computer that is fallible. So we're going to destroy it. <laughs> now that that interest, that introduces a really weird thing here, which is this kind of you know cultural imperialism 
that uh, Kirk is enacting here. And at the end of the episode, he, he says it again. He says it in the, the wrap-up that the experts from the Enterprise, the sociologists and the small crew, are going to stay on the planet to help restore the culture back to, and I quote, a human form. Right. What? <laughs> you know, our, our experts who have never been here, they, they're going to come in and they're going to teach you how to be people. Yeah, you know what it reminded me of? I've uh-huh. uh, Of late, I've been watching a show on AMC called uh, Hell on Wheels. Oh, yeah, of course. That's yeah. all about uh, – Colm Meany, by the way, to tie this into mm-hmm. a Star Trek discussion – um, it's all about uh, building the railroad out to the West. And, of course, part of the problem is they've they've come across um, Native Americans who aren't yeah. really hip to the whole, oh, you're just going to roll through? That's cool. Yeah, not so much. Um, right. I kind of got the feeling that, that that based on what Kirk had said as far as a, – a, a, what it was – what it, I wrote down the term when he talked about the prime directive. What about the prime directive? Kirk says that's only for living, growing cultures. And mm-hmm. does not apply here. Um, there's a great line from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where a man thought he was um, superior to dolphins because he had invented New York and war. <laughs> and the dolphins thought that they were superior to man for the exact same reason. <laughs> right. Kirk would look at the Native Americans and say, what are they sitting around all day hunting a buffalo when they need a buffalo, but then not, wait, where are your buildings? Where are your ships? You know, where, yeah. where, where, where's society as I understand it? Where's growth and progress as I understand it? I'm going to put a railroad in your backyard. Oh, except, of course, I can't because you don't even have a concept of a backyard. Do you see how you don't belong? Yeah. I mean, that, that does sort of seem to be the whole thing with Beta 3. I mean, you're right. They throw... It also reminded me, next gen, of um, IHU, the Borg that they, you know, sort of uh, bring onto uh, the Enterprise. D. Oh, oh, I, I Borg, yeah. I Borg, I apologize. Yeah, yeah, Hugh was yeah. Hugh was the, the, the name, name. Yeah. right, mm-hmm. of that particular Borg. They bring him on board and they sort of, they don't infect him with a computer virus that'll destroy everything, but they give him this idea of individuality, which ends up going back and wrecking his society. And yeah. there's, there's a... I, the one thing I will say is at least he left a sociologist and a few other sociologists, and good thing they had a few disposable sociologists on board the Enterprise. At least he left people to sort of you know help with some sort of reconstruction. Now, you can argue it is very imperialistic to say, well, the way we want you to reconstruct is the way you should be reconstructed. So trust me, this is going to be better. But at least he didn't just leave them like, well, good luck figuring out how to make food now. You know, <laughs> I mean, because there, there's another weird thing. Ah, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? There's another weird yeah. thing where, okay, so Redger runs a hotel. And there are shops because people are being thrown through the windows of shops. But right. you don't get the sense that there's money. I mean, Kirk and the away team show up at the hotel and they're like, oh, we're looking for a room. And Redger never says, okay, how many of you and how long will you be staying? And that will be X amount. Right. They show up because they need a room and Redger has a room. And so he gives them a room. There's no mention of, you know, of, uh, of money. There's no mention of, okay, well, I will do this for you. And in return, you will do this for me, which is, you know, what most societies at this point are are based on. Right. I can't imagine that the, you know, Landru computer was working on, okay, well, well, which of these people are going to be rich and who's going to lord it over someone else? I mean, he was trying to create this sort of utopia, right, where everything was fine, where everything was done for the good of the body. Yeah. So that didn't, you know, involve somebody, you know, having to work a minimum wage job as opposed to somebody working a job that for some reason pays them $10,000 a day. And so, I mean, yeah, the task that the three or four sociologists that they've left from the enterprise uh, is is going to be yeah, kind of huge. And what does that look like going forward? And does it immediately involve somebody going, well, why should I? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, because we'll give you money. And what is that? Okay. Right. Well, I guess I do want that then because it apparently will get me stuff that I just used to be handed to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it's better <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you get to decide. And now, what would be interesting is: is there any chance that the that the people of Beta Three, like five years from now, are going to go? You know what I miss, Landro. Yeah, and why not? <laughs> there, there are after the fall of the Iron Curtain. Yeah, 
you know, it, it kicked off this huge wave of nostalgia for the Soviet Union. Yeah. You know? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, part of the thing that's going on here, though, is that the, from a writing and production point of view, you're kind of tipping the hand to the audience because you have made them, you've made the inhabitants of Beta 3 so human. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of accept all of this. And I think that for you and me, we're looking at this going, oh, well, wait a minute. Is this imposing cultural will on top of somebody else and blah, blah, blah. And maybe we're not supposed to think about it that hard. But to me, it just seems sort of glaringly obvious. Um, But when you just look at them as other human beings (laughs) who are so Earth-like, then you kind of go, oh, of course, a computer's wrong. Now, the only place that I would uh, uh, agree with that, and and I would say, okay, well, well, Kirk is justified here in just wadding up 6,000 years of what was going on here and throwing it away is that just to me personally, it it, it does resonate that I really like this idea of revealing the truth, you know, revealing what is factual. And this is only the first time I'm going to use it, but it won't be the last time I use it. I love quoting Carl Sagan and the quote that popped into my head watching this is from uh, The Demon Haunted World, a book that he wrote. And he says, for me, it is far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in delusion, however satisfying and reassuring. That jumped out at me watching this episode because I kept thinking, well, of course, you know, it, it, it is better. Now, you can argue whether or not it's better to have this imposed on someone because that's what Kirk does. Here. Right. But generally speaking, it is better for the people of this planet to accept the reality of their situation as opposed to having this satisfying and reassuring, to use Sagan's words, delusion presented, constructed by this computer. So for me, that, that really did strike me. And, and I, a part of me totally agrees. Yes, rip the computer out of the wall, unplug it destroy it, let them now find themselves in, in the reality of their situation uh, because they didn't stand a chance before. Um, the problem is everything that leads up to that moment, it, you and I are sitting here going back and forth going, oh my God, did they really do that? Did they really do that? It, this makes no sense. <laughs> you know. Well, there, there are two things that... The, uh... I leap to mind when you when you say that one is outside of the Star Trek universe and one is inside um, mm-hmm. the Matrix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the Matrix and the ill-fated Matrix Two or Matrix Reloaded or whatever it was, I think it was Matrix Reloaded was the second one. Sure. You wondered at the end of the Matrix whether a, a, a recently freed Neo is then going to destroy the matrix is going to force everybody out but the thing is we know from stuff that happens in the matrix that there are people who are not ready to leave and then we find out sadly in in uh, matrix reloaded um that, that that it turns out a, a lot of people have decided no they really actually do want that they want they 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 want to stay inside they they want the illusion of of working but you know they they want to know that everything is ultimately going to be taken care of for them yeah. they can't actually face what's outside this is a theme, though, that's going to run all the way through Star Trek um, yeah, yeah. and started in the, in the unaired pilot, uh, the Menagerie, mm-hmm. right? Or was it the cage? I get them confused and it makes me the cage. nuts. The cage. <laughs> the Thank cage. you very much. <laughs> uh, Christopher Pike is presented with the option by the Telosians to, you know, sit there. Hey, watch TV. You want to pretend to ride your horse? Pretend to ride your horse and it'll feel real. And by the way, here's this fun, sexy thing to live out your life with mm-hmm. you, um, as far as you know. <laughs> and um and and Pike does Pike makes the same choice that Kirk is making the only thing is Kirk is making it for everybody as opposed to you know just for himself. Yeah. Well, I mean Kirk is taking this huge risk. He's making this huge assumption by destroying Landru, computer Landru, <laughs> that that the people on Beta 3 either did flourish before the imposition of the Landru computer or would flourish now that they took it away. Right. I, it, it, we have nothing to base that on <laughs> at all. 
Except for our own uh, carbon chauvinism. Exactly. I'm going to get a T-shirt that says carbon chauvinist. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be the first mission log T-shirt. Oh, no. What was the other one? We already had one. Cool as Kirk. Oh. Coolest yeah, Kirk go. was the first Mission Log t-shirt. This will have yep. to be the second one. T-shirts, okay. by the way, not available for the Mission Log from any place right now, but uh, <laughs> check back soon. Personally, I think it's a shame what happened to Landrew. He was a fine hunk of machine, but how does his story hold up today? Time now to do that thing we do at the end of every episode. End the episode. See ya! Wait, we do have stuff that we do before that, actually. Oh, right. Uh, we ask a few questions. Messages, morals, meanings, do they all stand up? That kind of thing. Um, let's start with the production, John Champion. Does the production uh, of Return of the Archons uh, hold up to you? Oh, man, I, I feel conflicted here. I really do, because I look at this episode and it's got just all kinds of plot holes and and false starts. Like, you present an idea and then you don't follow up on it. Um, but it's still creepy and weird, and I think kind of daring, mm-hmm. you know, to, to present these heavy ideas that then give well, you and me and everybody else something to talk about, something to really think about. Um, I don't buy the whole thing of talking to a computer to make it self-destruct that, that seems like a very naive 60s way to handle a computer um <laughs> but but on the other hand i love this because it is so ripe for discussion you know you and i feel like it, in this episode we have only scratched the surface and we could probably do three more episodes just about the return of the archons um but i'm frustrated because i feel like there's so much more within the episode that could have been done um, and maybe if this were to be rewritten, revisited, um, done under a different context, it would be even stronger. <laughs> so I, I don't know that, I, oh gosh, this is frustrating. Um, I, oh man, you really put me on the spot here. Do I think it holds up or not? That should be the <laughs> easiest question that we have to answer in well, it, any episode it, of Mission Log. Especially because I ask it every week. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's not a surprise. No, I know this not. question is coming. <laughs> right. um, I'm, I'm going to say yes. Good. Um, because it, it it is challenging. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If for no other reason, it seems to me, if for no other reason than the fact that it leaves you going, well, wait a minute. What about that? Well, wait a minute. What about that? Yeah. Then I would say this episode holds up and, and not in a stupid way. I, I know we're, I mean, I've, it's, it's like I've got a dartboard with, you know, Mary on it, <laughs> but this is not like Mary where it's like, oh, a second earth with no explanation and no examination. Yeah. I mean, festival actually works for me with no explanation and no examination because we've got that today in our society. We've got stuff that we do and we don't even know why we do it anymore except we've always done it. Very few mm-hmm. people actually examine why we do a lot of the things that we do. We just do. Why don't I walk under a ladder? Yeah, right. Why do I throw a little salt over my shoulder when I spill salt? Mm-hmm. Why is breaking a mirror bad luck? I got no clue. But it's all yeah. it's all stuff that's that's stored, you know, that's still here. They give you they give you festival and you're kind of like on what planet does that make sense? And it gives you a lot to play with. Whereas in theory, they give you just a whole other planet and you're just like, well, that doesn't make sense. So if for no other reason than the fact that it leaves so many questions and it leaves so much stuff to play with and you're not playing with it because you want to make it work, you're playing with it because it's got to do something. I mean, there's so much there. I, I, I feel like it does stand up. Although really when I was asking about the production side of it, I was just asking about the production side of it. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can fault it on there is the fact that Sulu's costume is so different than Kirk's costume. But I love the fact that when we see the, 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 you know, the representation of what the person Landru used to look like, he's from Krypton. You know, yeah, right. I mean, he's right. got like this total like a razor head hairdo and, you know, sort of like this, this purple and gold thing going on that has nothing yeah. to do with anything that their society is. There's just so much. I mean, this 
this is like a package that that wants to be open. This is this, there's so much here that wants to be unpacked and played with. Not that needs to be, but that just wants to be. Um, and then message message and moral side of it as well. Ugh. I don't know. Oh, Tell yeah. me about that. Well, that's the thing. You know, we we ask now what is the message? There is no one message here. I think there is a lot to be covered. And I, I just took cursory notes here and all this stuff started coming out. You know, our idea of utopia is not utopia. This idea of a complacent, happy society is deep down not what we want. Um, I think that that's an interesting thing to ponder here. Um, the, there is no single-sided peace and love that you have to have the other side of that to contrast to show that you have something to work for. Kirk has this line in it. He, he says to um, Rager, freedom is never a gift. It has to be earned. Um, I, I like the idea here that we're pondering, you know, individual freedom versus groupthink, that we're talking about things like blind faith and just accepting what is handed to us by an authority figure mm-hmm. um, and, and tearing that to shreds. <laughs> um, do you violate the prime directive when you have to? That's a really interesting ponder, uh, point to ponder here. Um, and then the idea of creativity is not just necessary for life, but, but part of the thing that defines life, at least human life. Um, I thought that was a, a really interesting point in here. So um, there is so much that I like. I, I think the things that struck me the most were kind of you know, pulling back the curtain and uh, revealing the authority for what it truly was and then being able to push onward after that, you, you know, facing the new reality. Um, I, I don't know. There's a lot for me. What about you, Ken? Um, well, about the only message that I would feel comfortable taking and saying this is definitely a message of the show mm-hmm. is um, is the whole thing about not – about not having blind adherence to a system without being able to ask it or question it or mm-hmm. wonder whether or not it's, you know, whether or not it's what we should continue doing. Doing it because it's how we've always done it is not necessarily um, the best reason to continue to do things. And uh, and uh, a set of rules or a system or society that won't allow itself to be questioned and examined, um, bad. <laughs> <laughs> right. to, to to lapse into Tarzan speak, <laughs> bad. That's that's what I would say. So I mean, as far as that message, yeah, I think that that stands up. And that's not to say that you automatically overthrow every system, because I mean that would be foolish. If you've got a system that works, good, stick with that. But you know, you need to be able to sort of look at it and make sure that it actually is still working. Um, I, I I would. I would continue that thought. I, I would say you have to, even if it is a system that works and even if it's a system that works for you, I think you have to question it. Right. I, I think you, you have to examine it okay. um, and ask questions about it. So does that message hold up? Yes. Heck yeah. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's sometimes tough to tell. I mean, no, I, scratch that. I don't think everybody would necessarily agree. I think everybody would agree with that in theory. But then when you get down to the nuts and bolts of it, when you actually start doing that questioning, it happens with me too. There are some things that, you know, I I personally think, yes, we should be able to question all of these things. And yet there are some topics that we get to them and I'm like, oh, that makes my tummy feel weird. Should we really be questioning this? And, you know, ultimately, I, I, I think the answer is yes. And ultimately, I hope the answer is yes. But Yes, I want I want that to be true for everybody. I don't think it is true for everybody, but I want it to be. So, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll say yes. That holds up with a uh, with an asterisk. Okay, you know? <laughs> I, and and the asterisk down at the bottom of the page is, gee, I hope so. You know, we don't always ask this question, but I, I'm going to ask you what what would you do? Do you think that Kirk did the right thing here? Well, he had 48 minutes. Yeah. I mean that that really is what it comes down to. Ultimately, I think this is one of those and sort of again, it, it's weird to me that Miri keeps coming up to me for this episode and maybe Miri comes up to me for this episode because it was very obviously done on a back lot like we talked mm-hmm. about in Miri as well. Sure. This is one that I would really – I would actually read the book about this society 
and if somebody if if you know let's get them well not Robert J Sawyer because he doesn't write Star Trek fiction but let's get somebody who writes Star Trek fiction on the phone let's get Peter David on the phone and get him to do a three book <laughs> arc about this I want to know about uh, this society when Landru took them back to basics I want to know about what happened with the Archons and then I want to know what happens a hundred years from now. What would I have done? I, you know, in 48 minutes, it's very tough to say. I think you're right. Kirk was a little too cavalier once the society was destroyed. There's, I mean, you, you came dangerously close to the, the big group laugh at the end. Yeah. When they say, uh, oh, by the way, this is a sociologist called and things are going great. There have already been several domestic disputes and a couple of knockdown drag out fights. Ha, 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 ha. They're human. Look at that. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a world of hurt coming for this world of people. Yeah, <laughs> because yeah. after 6000 years of knowing exactly what to do, Spock even mentions it. The people are now reacting without guidance for the first time. For the very first time, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going to happen here. Um, it's hard to know what I would have done in Kirk's position. I don't think in a 48 minute TV show that Kirk could have done anything differently. Um, it would be interesting to know how Picard would have handled it. Mm. And uh, and it would really be interesting to see, you know, if you've got more time, more than one episode uh, allows, more even than one movie allows. You go novels, you go miniseries. I think there's actually th- – th- that you question whether or not this episode stood up is kind of surprising to me because this episode so stands up to me just because – it opens up so many other doors. And even if even if Star Trek never takes us through those doors specifically, uh, we got a million doors that we can go through from here on out. Yeah. Well, my question about holding up goes from like, first of all, production value. Yeah. You know, I think no, that, that. that's a, a critical thing. And just all these kind of weird little holes. And, and I'll go back to this idea about, you know, what would you do? I feel like we are missing scenes and we're missing information Mm -hmm. and like you said in a 48 minute episode well something has to happen and kirk is the catalyst for that thing to happen so as much as we can debate whether or not it was right or wrong given the information that they had i think ultimately and that's why i brought up that carl sagan quote ultimately i come down on the side of well it is better to reveal the thing that is factual because you can make better and more informed decisions about it than to persist in delusion. So I, I, I think in a, in a question of what would I do, given the information, I, I, think, I think I have to come down and say that, well, Kirk probably did the right thing, but man, he just did it in a seemingly awful way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know. it's it's the, the difficult part is Kirk did the right thing for Kirk, and he's imposing it on everybody else. I mean, it's really yeah. cool that um, it's really cool that very educated, highly influential, did not end his life poor Carl Sagan gets to say, you know, what I would always look for is truth, because there are probably a lot of people on this planet right now who says, you know, what I would look for is food. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's really neat for somebody who who is coming from a, a place of uh, cultural and um, educational uh, privilege, as Kirk does as well. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's great for somebody who's got all the benefits to say, no, 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 truth's the key. When there, you know, there, 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 are billions of people who are just, you know, you know, kind of hoping that they don't get hit by somebody else and that they get to eat tomorrow. You know, I mean, it's it's ugh, it's tough. Yes, I I I am on Kirk's side on this, but I also have to be conscious of the fact that you know, I live in America. I live in America in the twenty first century. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's fairly easy for me to say no. I want to examine truths because I got food in the fridge. Right. You know, and yeah, uh, ugh, this this episode is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You know, it maybe is. a couple more explosions, but otherwise this episode's awesome. <laughs> right. Well, hey, speaking of awesome, yeah. what do we have coming up next week? I don't know. Another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, I think. Let me check the notes. Do, 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 do. Oh. <laughs> Tell everybody what we have next week, John. There are some supervillains in the world who only need one name. Madonna or Cher. But next week, 
we will meet Khan in Spacey. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Promotional consideration for this episode of Mission Log provided by Body by Landru, with guest accommodations provided by Regers, a pan-galactic resort. And trans... Wait a moment. Wait a moment. Incoming transmission. Hello, gentlemen. This is John from Las Vegas, and I'm loving the podcast. Uh, I had a pet theory, I think, about Star Trek and the interplay between uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and uh, I think that it really shows up in the Galileo 7, and I wanted to share it with you guys and see what you thought about it. Uh, Several thousand years ago, Aristotle wrote some works about how to best appeal to an audience, and he had this idea of ethos, pathos, and logos, uh, which are the three things you can do to appeal to an audience. And I think that each of the three characters really is personified by one of these three things. So you have Kirk, who is only interested in doing the right thing. He will break rules. He will violate Starfleet orders. He will do all kinds of things that uh, maybe are not by the letter of the law because he seems to really be concerned about doing the right thing. And that's really ethos. Uh, that's, That's an appeal to justice and doing what is right. You can look at the way that he behaved in Conscience of the King. And of course, we don't talk ahead on the podcast, but uh, the, some of the things that he does in, later on, for instance, in some of the movies, is also very consistent with that. Uh, then, of course, you have Mr. Spock, uh, who is only interested in logic. Uh, he doesn't understand emotion. He doesn't really understand uh, operating outside the rules in a lot of ways. I think that's why perhaps the menagerie is such an exception. Uh, so he's very much interested in, in logic. And then you have McCoy, who always leads with emotions, uh, pathos, which is an appeal to emotions. And he always leads with that. He he always responds emotionally. And I I think that when you put the three of them together, they represent these three things that Aristotle was writing about uh, several thousand years ago. And I think it's just remarkable that I think one of the lessons of the Galileo 7 specifically is that a leader, demonstrating leadership, needs to demonstrate all three and one of them, to the exception of the others, will be nothing but dangerous, and the leader won't be successful. So anyway, that's what I thought about it. Keep up the podcast. Doing a great job. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Nerdist.com.